What's up, everybody? Welcome to August. And welcome to This Week in Mormons, the premier Latter-day Saint news and entertainment podcast. I'm Jeff Openshaw. And I'm Tiffany Hales, one half of the Twim Sisters. That's right. We're combining forces this week because sometimes it's just a fun thing to do, folks. So uh, glad you're here listening with us. Apologies, the show's getting out a little bit late this week. We just had some things we had to tie off that made it difficult to record uh, on our usual Monday time. And if Tiffany doesn't mind that, that, that those complications were the fact that Tiffany had no carpet or furniture. So that was <laughs> exactly. the main issue. Yeah. yeah, I can't remember if I've talked about it with Arianne when we've podcasted that I began a remodel of my house in April. And this is kind of the end accumulation of that remodel is to get the carpet. And the carpet, uh, the first day of carpet installation was today. So last night we were moving furniture, getting things ready, painting trim after we'd pulled up carpet to get ready for round one of carpet. And it looks amazing. It's like I'm living in a brand new house. It is so nice because when we moved into this house 11 years ago, we had six kids at home and um, now I'm down to one. And I have to tell you, those six kids did a number on my house. You know, oh, yeah. we'd fix things that we needed to. But other than that, my husband and I would just shake our heads and go, we'll have nice things someday. Someday when we have no children, we'll have nice things. We're and still we're on like point. a lot of the, yeah, we're still on a lot of the whatever furniture we got as yeah. newlyweds all these years later. Cause now we're like, they're just going to destroy anything we buy. So just, just destroy the stuff. It's exactly. It's exactly. Fun. Well, and when I moved in, when we bought this house, there was a retired couple that lived here and they had put cream color carpet throughout the house. And I'm taking a look at that cream color carpet. And I'm like, oh man, my, my kids are going to, my kids are going to do a number on this. And let me tell you, they did not disappoint. And so now I have gone to a lovely milk chocolate brown carpet to hide all dirt. <laughs> I'm a big fan of grays. I like gray carpet. Big fan of the gray. Just love the gray. We have gray carpet. Very happy. Well, oh, Tiffany doesn't like this. It's a classy gray. I have very classy carpet. It's very classy. I think gray is on the way out, Jeff. I think everybody's tired of gray everything. How and dare you? Well, I yeah. think that earth tones are going to be coming back in. I think we're going to see the resurgence of brown. They, they might be doing that. But one thing, we're in different places. You're pretty much in the home you want to be in for True. forever, right? We have yes. no plan. Of, this is not our long-term house. We will move on at some point. And so even little things we do, we always do it with the thought of how much easier is this to have a blank palette for resale later mm-hmm. on? Like we bought the house, I was telling you, one bedroom was bright pink and the other bedroom was blue with like Spider-Man painted all over the ceiling. It was a mother <laughs> of a time to just get all this stuff painted over and be all nice yeah. and neutral. Um and for that reason, like, yeah, I mean, right now, if we we're selling, who cares? It's still a good, yeah. a good seller's market. But, uh, you know, we try to try to keep things, keep things reasonable here with the reasonable open shots. It's what my wife and I are. We just kind of try to be reasonable folks across the board. I completely agree. We had a Tuscan theme going on in my house because it was last remodeled in about 2006, 2007. Very- you have archways? Oh yeah. Archways, yellows, the whole Mm. nine yards. And so um, I could not change my travertine tile. I could not change my granite and I could not change my cabinets. So I went to a friend of mine who's a designer and I said, these are the things I cannot change. Give me a paint color that will work with all of those. And she gave me, um, it's it's called um, 
Swiss coffee, which would make you think that it is brown, but it is actually a creamy white. So we went with a very neutral palette for all of our walls, and we are going to choose our color via accessories. That's what you're supposed to do. That's the exactly. Way well, good for you. This has been so. an insightful discussion about these things. My goal is to somehow make subway tile work for flooring, but it's yet to be done. I'm kidding. Can you imagine? Good good luck with that. (laughs) No, don't do it because there's way too much grout because that's the other thing I've had to do is we've got these lovely 12 by 12 travertine tiles and the grout looked like it was chocolate grout. It was never chocolate grout. It was linen grout, but I had to get down there and scrub all the grout out. And now it looks like how it's supposed to look. Oh man. Manual labor is hard. No fun. Don't they know you're a lawyer? You're a fancy (laughs) litigator. You don't have time for this. You're supposed to hire someone. (laughs) Oh, well. My husband won't let me. He's like, we can do this ourselves. And he's not wrong. No, I mean, I I feel it. (laughs) Well, I'm glad things in Idaho are uh, going swimmingly. Uh, And likewise, Virginia, we're just, we're Virginianing on out here in Virginia in the DC area, living the dream. And it's an interesting week for Latter-day Saint news, ladies and gentlemen. Lots of, it's a fun random week. I love fun random weeks when there really isn't like yeah. a big theme. Last week, we spoke a lot about the Joseph Smith photo, for example, or the yeah. one allegedly about Joseph Smith. That's a huge story. And it's still ongoing. There are oh, updates. Yeah. There are some I've seen, I've already seen the gamut of people who who are trying to prove it one way or the other. So good times there. This week, on the other hand, just to give you a teaser, we have things like female chaplains, singles wards, some Mormons behaving badly, you know, with vandalism or bad, what, sheriffs? Yes, things like that. Um, you know, it was Pioneer Day and uh, fires in temples. It's that kind of a week, folks, just fires in temples. You know, what? I might as well talk about the fire in temple because here I am. This is a weird story because we don't see things like this very often. But about a week ago, it's kind of right after we published last week's episode, so it was not included. Uh, there was a fire at the Orem, Utah Temple. And if you remember, the Orem, Utah Temple is not a functional temple. The Orem, Utah Temple is under construction right now. It's probably, I don't know, two-thirds of the way done or so, based on the look of yeah. it. When you, when you look at the picture, it looks, I mean, they've done some significant work on it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's it's cruising along. They still have scaffolding around yeah. the exterior paneling and all that, but and you know, so it's not lit or or sealed or anything like that. But they are still investigating flames that were were reported on Monday, July twenty fifth, just before midnight, inside the temple. They said the fire was quickly extinguished. The source of the fire is not yet known. They used foam to extinguish the fire, which limited water damage to the construction site. And they're still investigating what the hooey happened. In this case, and it's been a week and we checked and I've not seen an update as far as what happened here, which makes me believe it was not vandalism. If it was vandalism, we would immediately say it was vandalism. I have to assume this might have been like contractor error in some regard. And uh, so the information is going to be a little bit slower in that sense. I mean, remember when the Provo Tabernacle caught a blaze? I forgot. What was the reason for that? Wasn't that's like a... It was oh, an was electrical that? fire. Yes. It was something that started... But what was the... I know it was electrical, but what started that was electrical? Wasn't it someone left a lantern or something? Yeah, somebody no. left something on and I, I, I don't recall, but I, but I just know that it was <coughs> electrical. I can't remember what it was. Let's see. Fire, cultural impact, fire, fire, fire. <laughs> what do we have here? 12 weeks for now. 
It's a mixed color heat source, specifically an energized 300 watt lamp, which was placed too close to combustible materials, ah. specifically a wooden speaker enclosure. That's the same rationale why you don't why you're not usually allowed to put power outlets inside closets, ladies and gentlemen. Look that up. It's probably against code where you wherever you live. Really, I had no uh, idea. I have a closet that has a power outlet in it. It's not. It's not always. <laughs> the idea is the risk that people throw boxes and stuff in ah. closets, and you could you could put something flammable near an outlet and not think much about it. Whereas you wouldn't do that in most other rooms in your house. Uh, so anyway, this is uh, this has happened in Orem. Everything's fine. Obviously, this was not, and this was not a. Yeah an active temple or anything like that, but you don't see these stories very often. And I'm curious to see if they ever tell us what actually happened or if it will forever exactly. be a mystery. Like what happened to the, to the Harrison New York temple? Who knows? I'm going to guess that it was probably construction related that uh, a worker was doing something and forgot to turn something off. And that's like a blowtorch. Yeah. Who knows? Welder. All that welding you know, inside the temple. The stake center that I went to growing up, um, this was in the 90s. They were putting a new roof on it in July. And um, the uh, construction workers, the roofers, I don't know what they did, but they started the roof of the building on fire. And then it just went up like a matchstick. Wow. It was very sad because it was a really cool building. It was built in the 40s. So it had kind of a lot of art deco stuff going on with it. And um, of course, they replaced it with just your regular cookie cutter basic church, uh, which kind of bummed me out because it was just architectural wise, very unique. So yeah, I, I that's probably the cause is, is something construction related. Yeah, I choose to believe it was vandalism. Come on. Somebody crept into like the second floor somehow, and uh, it, it was hobos. It was hobos. It was a trash can fire. They didn't want to tell us. There were squatters inside. Squatters that's in the all. temple. Yep. I'm sure squatters that's it. Temple. Squatters in the temple. Name of the episode <laughs> done right there. There you go. All right. What do you want to, where do you want to go next, Jeff? This is up to you, Tiffany. Come on. You, you, you're an equal player here. Whatever you well, want to do. Should we do the story about the church endorses its first female military chaplain? Yeah, I think that's pretty interesting. Go for it. I thought it was very interesting. So there is a young woman. Her name is Jenna Carson. She is a returned missionary, and she's graduated from BYU and Harvard Divinity School. And um, what was interesting is kind of her path as to how she got to be a chaplain. So she'd served a mission, and while she was on her mission, I think she said that um, she just she just had some she was trying to figure out essentially you know what she wanted to be when she grew up and so she came back from her mission and she went back to BYU and um during the time she was on her mission she got a revelation that she was going to go to graduate school after she finished her bachelor's degree so she was talking with one of her professors and her professor said hey have you thought about Harvard Divinity School so she was like no i haven't and so she made some choices that landed her at Harvard Divinity School and um she ultimately uh kind of, she had, comes from a family that had served in the military. None of them had been chaplains, but they had had military service. And she never really envisioned herself being in the military. Um, but she just kind of felt this calling that she needed to 
perhaps be a military chaplain. And so there is a whole process apparently that you have to go through to apply to be a military chaplain. And like with, with the church, yeah. With the, it's church. Like with the church. Yeah. yeah. So why don't you explain that process, Jeff? Oh, I don't maybe know. What you the process is. I don't know. Yeah. It just I, said, it's a process. It's a process. <laughs> Yeah. So it's a process. She had a bunch of paperwork. She had to, um, cause she has to get endorsed by the church. So the church has to say, yes, you know, we endorse her to be a chaplain and it took, um, it says her endorsement process stretched out over several years. She had several setbacks. Not everybody was encouraging. Um, she also dealt with a personal challenge during that time. She ended up divorced, but she just remained certain that that's where the Lord wanted her to do to, what to, for her, what that's yeah. what the Lord wanted for her. And so- Go ahead. Whenever you're, whenever you're ready, I looked up some of the requirements in the process. Okay, the what are the requirements? I didn't mean to jump in there. Uh, so it's it's fascinating when they do this because we have military liaisons in the church, and there's a whole wing that does things like this. So the first step is you t- you contact the military military relations and chaplain division by email or by phone, and then you go through and just the initial endorsement requirements. You submit an application. You possess a current. Temple recommend. You complete interviews with the bishop and stake president, but it doesn't stop there. These interviews, of course, are coordinated by the military relations and chaplain division. You complete a chaplain advisory board review. You complete a psychological personality evaluation. You complete a general authority interview. Mm-hmm. You have to serve faithful in church callings. Um, and they said it's preferred but not mandatory that chaplains have served full-time missions, which is also oh. interesting as well. Um and they, of course, they have a, work, a working knowledge of the handbook, specialized educational, you know, training requirements, which in this case is often a graduate degree in theology is very, very common. Um, and that's what you have to get up front. Then you have to do a bunch of annual endorsement requirements and continue with that stuff and get recertified. It's a pretty like rigorous process, you would think. And you've, I feel like you don't hear much about military chaplains. And we have this entire apparatus in place which to go through I- a lot of steps to get there. Yeah. I had no idea. So it actually functions, you know, once she's approved, essentially kind of as a calling and she is set apart by a general authority. It's crazy. Yeah. I think, I think she said she was set apart by Elder Jaggy. I think that's how his... How that's his, not a real person. How, well... <laughs> I could very well be mispronouncing it. I'm not known for my pronunciation of people's names. Anyway, I, I, I also thought it was very interesting because I would have assumed if you had asked me prior to this story that the church would limit being a chaplain to male members. And uh, I just would have assumed that. I would have assumed they wouldn't have considered a sister for a yeah. chaplain. And But apparently that's not a requirement. I know. And I guess it's just it's just kind of on us for assuming in that yeah, sense, right? Exactly. But it does make sense. It fits the mold. We're so accustomed to we view a, a chaplain as like, okay, some form of spiritual leader. Exactly. Uh they can vary as far as your duties, but that's a lot of what you're doing. And so it's, you know, I think given what how we are as Latter-day Saints organizationally, we would assume that's a man. But it's also not priesthood focused per se. And we know that women are using the priesthood, you know, through delegation and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, you're not doing anything that requires ordination um, or ordinances or anything like that, that you would have to have the priesthood to, uh, in which to officiate. Exactly. Just basically ministering and counseling. 
So here's something that's interesting. I'm looking at another one of their web pages. It does say church requirements are that Latter-day Saint applicants applying to serve as military chaplain must be married in the temple and remain worthy. And she mentions in hers that she's divorced. And as far as I know, she did she remarry? Does it say that anywhere in the article? It doesn't say in the article that she that she remarried. It just said that during the process that uh, she had a personal challenge of divorce. So yeah, and it's interesting. I, so I mean, the the oh sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, I mean, she was. Uh, presumably married in the temple. It just says married in the temple and remain, what was it, worthy? Yeah. So, and and who knows what the cause of the divorce was. Yeah, so yeah, and that's, and that's, it, fu- and that's fine. It so, could very well be something that was not within her control. Yeah. So it is interesting. So, so that we understand the responsibilities of military chaplains and what they are, because they're not branch presidents or anything like that. So you're a member of commander staff. Chaplains serve as moral, ethical, and spiritual advisors to their commanders. They ensure that individuals are afforded religious freedom uh, while they're serving, of course. A lot of their work is done one-on-one, but they advise commanders regarding the impact of religion on military operations. Uh, they minister aboard wherever they are, you know, if it's the Navy, like, you know, Navy and Coast Guard ships at sea during combat operations. They teach classes to service members on topics, though, of religions, ethics, leadership. It's a very interesting role. Uh, it covers yeah. a lot of bases. And and the main thing is you have to be able to operate in a, a religiously pluralistic environment. You might be yeah. giving counsel to someone who's not of your faith. They're not necessarily strictly devoted to Latter-day Saints to be a chaplain. So. It's cool stuff. I can't believe we haven't had a female one to this point, but I think it's great. Blazing, blazing trails. I think it's awesome. Go Jenna. Um, if I can add a quick thing, because we're talking about gender stuff here. Uh, last week, we Jared and I spoke extensively about why women can't pass the sacrament, and we don't have to get into a lot of detail this week. But I just want to thank one of our listeners for passing my way an interesting piece from the Journal of Mormon uh, History that gave an overview of essentially the devolution of Aaronic priesthood responsibilities from oh. men to teenage boys over the decades of the churches existed and how this process went. Cause it has, they haven't for a long time, Aaronic priesthood was also an adult thing. And then they slowly got the young men involved. There was even a lot of reticence in, in some areas to allow young men to pass the sacrament because they thought they wouldn't take it like seriously enough or with enough reverence because they were teenagers and were not to be trusted you know, or things like that. <laughs> They're um, still not to be trusted. <laughs> so, 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 so shout out for that, for getting it my way in a very, very interesting uh, piece in that article. And it does stand to reason. Like you look at it and say, okay, like it's a good reminder. There's not uh there, there's policy and there's things that we do because the, the you know, the leaders have said it's what we do, but you know, the, the young men, deacons passing the sacrament is not laid out in the scriptures. It's a decision that we've made that evolved over time for them to do that. And I can fully understand someone who makes the argument that, uh, that young women should have every reason to also yeah. be able to pass the sacrament. They can't bless it. That's administering the sacrament, but to pass it around that you can see the arguments. To be clear, I'm not agitating. If anyone in Salt Lake is listening, I'm not pushing for anything. I'm not marching on Salt Lake. I'm not trying to do anything out of t- untoward towards uh, any of our leaders. I'm just uh, just noting something here for everyone's listening. So thank you, listeners, for keeping me on the straight and narrow uh, in that case. <sighs> okay. Okay. I don't think I'm going to get a communication. Take a deep breath, Jeff. <sighs> All right. So new one here. And article over at the Exponent de this past week called basically says singles words are against my religion. Um, yeah, okay, that's a fun way to put it. But it brings back to the fore one of my favorite topics, 
singles wards and essentially should they or should they not exist? This is from author Trudy talks about her own experiences, refusing to go to a singles ward, even as she entered her thirties and how she always felt that, um, that the singles in the church were sort of less than when it came to the members that we treat them as a segregated class to essentially say citizens. Yeah. Yeah. Essentially saying the real wards are the family wards and the singles wards are a place we have shunted these, these second class citizens until they get it together and rejoin the real church. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. Till they get it together and get themselves married so they can rejoin the real church. That's what I mean. Yes. 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 It's not just like a sanatorium. Yes. So, um, so where they get married and she provides six reasons why singles wards are against her religion, as she says. I think there's some compelling arguments here. I don't agree with everything that's listed, but um, I like number one. She says, singles wards show the youth of the church that there's no place for them if they don't marry. I think it's a bit of a broad generalization, but I get it because teenagers at church observe, observe adults to see what the church will be like. And with the popularity of singles wards, what they see is that single people are sent away from the congregation and permitted to return when they have done that respectable thing and gotten married. Or if you hit 31 and get booted out, and as she says, return in disgrace. Um, like, I get it. It might benefit youth to say, oh, yeah, there's like regular single people in my ward. Like, where, instead of always assuming, where do they disappear to? Where do they go? They just, they just disappear and live this different life. Um, and like we said, singles wards perpetuate yeah. the notion of single people uh, as other. I think that's, I get it. I think that's fine. Singles wards deprive single members of opportunities to experience a diverse congregation. I agree with that one quite a bit because you're roughly the same age. You might be from different walks of life, but you're all kind of there doing the same thing in the same scene. uh, And you're not experiencing the church like as it is for everybody else. And with the real life that uh, comes from that. And likewise, singles words deprive the rest of the church of the talents of single people. And I do agree with this one quite a bit because I've seen the good and the bad of this. Yes, I think singles wards kind of get pushed away. And because all you're thinking is like, why are these kids married? We also want to keep them active. So we give them this special organization and structure to keep them involved in the church and be with their peers and with the hope they'll also be cool. Like on the DC side, I've seen part of the downside of it is the singles wards in DC are very large and a lot of fun. And I honestly think it delays marriage for some because they're just kind of enjoying like the scene with their peers. But at the same time, the stake I was in worked pretty hard to incorporate the singles. They, they now have their own single oh. stake in DC. But back then, we were part of the uh, the regular stake, like a lot of singles wards are. There was two YSA wards and one mid-singles ward. But they involved them. They called members of the singles ward to help out with, like, to be on the girl, state girls camp committee, to help out with scout camp. They called members of our ward to the stake high council. You had ordained high priests who were called to be on the high council as single guys, because you can do that. Yeah. And so they did it. They worked pretty hard to, to involve us. I mean, the one thing you can't do in a singles ward is be the bishop. But every so that, that makes no difference. You have a, a you have a married bishop if you're in a singles ward, and you have a married bishop if you're, if you're in a family ward. So whoop de do. So let me ask you this question: With all those DC wards, yeah. um, so say you have somebody who is divorced, so that makes mm-hmm. them single, but they have children, especially with the mid singles ward. Are they allowed to bring their children to the mid singles ward, or is this just a mid singles ward? for somebody who has no children and is single. First, before I say anything, I open this up to our listeners. So I bet people have had those kinds of experiences. So okay. like, seriously, let, let us know on Facebook, folks. Tell us uh, tell us about your experiences with that if you've had them. 
from what I've seen, and I don't know, I do not know if there's a rule. It might be up to this local leader interpretation and feeling. I have seen uh, divorcees with children attending. Well, I'm trying to think. I've seen them attend the wards. I don't know if I remember if I've seen them bring their kids or not, though. Because those wards aren't going to go out of their way to like yeah. have primary or something like that. They don't yeah, do well, that. Yeah, well, and that was my question, especially in a mid-singles ward. If you had a number of par- single parents there with kids, would they offer a primary? Because I, I think for, you know, that's one of the things that keeps a lot of people who end up single that have kids going to a family ward instead of a singles ward is because they want their kids to have that experience of primary. Yeah. I think they could. I don't, I don't see there's anything. I don't see why they couldn't. I don't think there's anything that says they can't. It would just be a matter of, I mean, the issue would be staffing. When you're setting up primary, well, staffing when you're setting up primary yeah. in a family ward, you are assuming these people are here and their children will grow. <laughs> if you are in a singles ward, you're clearly not hoping these people will be here and their children will grow <laughs> through five years of primary or something while they're in exactly. the mid-singles ward. You're, you know, you're hoping they'll get it together. But that is an interesting, interesting thought, Tiffany. I haven't given that much. I, I definitely remember, yeah, like some people with kids, I never went to the mid-singles ward, but I remember seeing some who had kids would still show up at the singles ward. Um, there was even, I remember uh, there was like a single mom who actually came to a YSA ward I was in before <laughs> and the bishop was like cool with it. You know, he knew her yeah. situation and stuff, but she was only in her late twenties and still wanted to be with her peers. And you know, that's fine. She actually wound up, I think she wound up just marrying a guy in the ward and he was yeah. cool with taking on her kid and making that his family. So good for them. They well, never would have met. She would have been stuck in a family ward. This spring, our bishop gave an ultimatum to the young men and the young women who graduated. Because technically, after you graduate, excuse me, from high school, sorry, I got to take a drink of water. It's all right, Marco Rubio, make it happen. Well, you know, I had the COVID. I think in my last two weeks ago when we podcasted, I was like, COVID or jury duty, which is going to get me first? COVID got (laughs) me. And I'm still trying to get over the congestion of it. Anyway, so the edict that the bishop gave the young men and young women in our ward is he said, you're going to do one of two things. You're either going to stay in this ward or you're going to go to the singles ward. You're not toggling back and forth and going, oh, I'll go here this week. I'll go there this week. You're going to make yourself part of one of the two wards. And so a good majority of them elected to go to the singles ward. My son did not. He was not interested in that. So they promptly gave him a calling in primary and he's teaching five-year-olds. There you go. So when I was when I was pretty fresh off my mission, I I was not into the idea of going to the singles ward. I, I mean, part of it was maybe just having something I knew, like if I go back to my yeah. family ward while I'm still here, going like I know this, it's fine. Uh, but it, after a handful of months, I started to kind of feel like I was missing out on something because I frankly, I remember I went one Sunday to go to the single the huge singles ward, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is like a madhouse. There's like so much going on here. But eventually, I found my way over there. So I, I mean, I see the arguments for it. And the last one here, for example, the last argument in this piece, it does say singles wards distract from the purpose of the church. I mean, I get, okay. I mean, the purpose of the church, it says here is to bring people to Christ. That is true. And then she says the purpose of the singles ward is to get people paired off, which is true, but I think it goes beyond that. I think it's to keep a certain demographic more active in the church than they might otherwise be. But I also understand if we got rid of singles wards, I think we'd figure out a way to make it work. I think we'd figure out a way to accommodate the YSA. And if like, we, I've seen some arguments. People will say, well, yeah, but come on. YSA, where, like, they never call these people to leadership positions. Being in a singles ward is the only way a 25-year-old woman is going to be the Relief Society president. 
okay, but that's just like culture. Like there's no yeah. reason you can't have a single 25 year old woman in a family ward and still call her the Relief Society president. You've just made that choice just not to do it and let the old guard kind of do stuff. And I have that's to a, say, that's a, that's a choice. To a certain extent, they'd be really smart to do that because she's going to have, have a lot more time on her hands than a I mom know. that has kids. I know. It'd be genius. It'd be, it'd be brilliant. If anything, so I'm not even arguing. I think it's, I think singles words are mostly okay. I'm not into single stakes. That's a whole different topic. But, um, but like you said there, I, I think how much could the YSAs though build up the family wards and help them grow? Because a lot of the time we are stuck in our ways and it would be an, ing- and it's like a lot of things. It's, it's this, I'm not going like, okay, boomer here, but it's like, Think about this infusion of a different mindset and youthful mentality that's excited about church and bringing that to a family ward that can be kind of stayed and going sometimes going through the motions and that could have a lot of advantages too. It could be good. So good piece. You can read it, you know, knock yourselves out folks. We'll link to it. All right. Should we talk about the tater tot story? Yeah. Oh, I'm so excited about the tater tot story. Um, I'm, I'm I'm equal parts excited and equal parts mystified that I have never heard of the tater tot story. And here's why. So this tater tot story starts in the lovely thriving metropolis of Nampa, Idaho, which oh, is yeah. just a short jaunt from Boise. And it is the town that I grew up in. Of course, Ariane grew up there. My dad was born there and grew up there. My grandparents lived there. And I'm like, how did I not know the tater tot story? So there is a gentleman and his name is F. Nephi Grigg. And they yep, called him, name. they called him Neef for short. That was his nickname. So he was born. Man, he the- must have hated his parents. I mean, <laughs> anyway, sorry. So he was born in 1913. Uh, he's the great grandson of Parley P. Pratt. Um, and he was, of course, like, most people in the early uh, 20th century, uh, his family lived on a farm. And so they had this small cattle and dairy farm. And it said in 1936, he married Addie Christine Kermit, Crummit on a car lot on Christmas Eve. And of course, you may say, well, why did he marry her on a car lot? The dealer had promised to give a car to the first person married on his lot on Christmas Eve, and he was never one to pass up a good deal. This man so, is a genius. Of course, with a name like Nephi, you know that this gentleman is a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I don't know a lot of people who aren't members naming their kids Nephi. So um, they ended up, uh, he and his brothers ended up um, mortgaging their farms and they had this business they wanted to buy, which was a flash freezing plant in Northeastern Oregon. So they paid $500,000 for it, which is the equivalent of about $4.5 million today. And they named their company Or Ida because the plant sat on the border of Oregon and Idaho. Now, I, of course, knew that that was the origin of the name Or Ida. And so what they started doing was they started doing frozen corn at first. And what he would see is um, the real money was in French fries. And so he was really frustrated with French fry production because there was a lot of potato scraps that were left over and they would sell those potato scraps for basically nothing for 
cattle feed. And so he was trying to figure out how can I take those potato scraps and how can I make them something? So he decides to mash them together. He seasons them and he bakes them. And a creative member of the Orida marketing team came up with the all too cute name of tater tots. So now he's got these tater tots and he's like, now how am I going to market these tater tots? So where would you go to market tater tots? Well, of course you'd go to Miami. Why would you not go to Miami to market your tater tots? I mean, that's what it makes sense. Exactly. So so he takes his 15 pounds of tater tots to Miami. He convinces this chef at this swanky hotel to cook them up and serve them in small saucers uh, as a sample to convention attendees. And they were gobbled up very, very quickly. So he knew he had a hit on his hands. So then they put them in the grocery store. But they're really inexpensive and they don't sell well because nobody trusts this new potato product that's very inexpensive. So he's like, okay, I'll up my price. So he ups the price of the tater tots and people buy the tater tots. And finally, or Ida gains 25% of the frozen potato market. He ends up selling it in 1965 for $30 million, which would be about $411 million today. And then, um, the article goes on to talk about, uh, you know, how tater tots have been ingrained in the culture, especially if you, of course, watch Napoleon Dynamite. Napoleon is a is a big fan of the tots. And so um, I just thought it was a very interesting article on the origin of the tater tot, especially following up. I can't remember if it was, I think it was last time Ariane and I podcasted, we talked about the origin of the fry sauce, which started with a member yeah. of the church who um, owned Arctic Circle in Utah. So let's, let's, let's give those LDS members credit for good things you're giving us. Fry sauce, tater tots, dirty soda. You got just cookie wars. It's just what a blessed place it is. I'm so excited because I think I've heard the Boise housing market is finally starting to cool off. So I can really get in on this sweet action. Finally, I'm very pumped. I've been, I've been chomping at the bit for for years, and my wife said, "No, no, honey, it's the most inflated market in the country. We can't do it Sorry. right now." So, I look forward to living in uh, Eagle. Eagle, of course you do. Hey, it's the swanky place, Jeff. <laughs> Eagle. That's a scrub reference. No, our, our prices are falling like the temperature in December. Heyo. Yep. But not like the temperature in the past week. No. All right. That I'm was last summer. A couple grab bag rando things for all y'all here. Uh, as you know, if in case you're new to this show, I live in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. And uh, one of the big things we have coming up is the rededication of the Washington, D.C. temple. It's actually going to happen here on August 14th, less than two weeks away. It's funny because they dedicate it, but then we can't actually use it for two more weeks after that. <laughs> so, okay. Whatever. Have to clean it. Yeah, I guess. You would think you'd clean it before th- then, I guess, but Okay. They got to clean it twice, Jeff. It gets dirty from the dedication. I don't know. By the way, it's funny because now that I'm like I'm in the bishopric now, and uh, the bi- bishops and stake presidents get to go in person and be in Ooh. the beautiful assembly hall on the seventh floor. But just the bishops, no invite has come the way of his wee counselors to do the same. No, it is bishops, just bishops. So it's going to be interesting because they're actually dedicate they're they're um, extending the temple they're making meeting houses extensions of the temple during this, you know, and then so yes. we'll check recommends and lock the doors. It's cool. I've done this once before. 
Um, I think it's a neat experience, but it is going to be kind of funny because basically the stake presidency and bishops won't be around. And it's like the elders quorum is just kind of running the show here. And uh, they've asked if people are willing to, you know, do security. And I don't know if security just means checking recommends or if it means like, you know, stalking around the, the lot, making sure ne'er-do-wells aren't hanging around our building during, I don't know what we're supposed to be doing. Patting down people, making sure they don't bring their guns. We don't have that problem here, even though even though Virginia is a does have a right to carry, but it's uh, yeah, it's not it's not as much of a thing uh, here. Also, it's against the rules in the church, as we all know. So anyway, I'm not going to read all of them, but LDS Living was kind enough to give us 25 noteworthy events and things tied to the Washington D.C. Temple. Yep, some some fun facts. Did you know it was originally called just the Washington Temple until 1999, mm-hmm. when the church redid its naming conventions for temples. So it was the Washington Temple and the Seattle Temple was just called the Seattle Temple and that was it. Now if you see temples, they're always called the Seattle Washington Temple. It's always like municipality, state, province, whatever that might be or country and then temple. So in the US, since we have states or in Canada, you know, they'll call it the Winnipeg Manitoba Temple. I do think it's curious that in Mexico, which Mexico's official name is the United States of Mexico, but because we don't all walk around thinking about the different states of Mexico, it's funny, right? Like you build the Puebla Mexico temple. You're not building it, you know, by its state name. I mean, why not? It's in the state of Puebla. Why shouldn't it be the Puebla Puebla Mexico temple? See, I always thought it was the Washington D.C. Temple. I mean, seventy-nine. I was twelve. I, I just, I, re- I don't ever remember it being referred to just as the Washington Temple. I always called it the Washington D.C. Temple. Well, that's what they call it. <laughs> Here's another example: Mexico, Monterey. It should be the Mont, the Monterey Nuevo León Temple, but it's the Monterey Mexico Temple. There is an elitism there. There is an there. Uh, the, uh, yeah, I'm getting up on my high horse, people. There is, there is an ethnocentrism at play there, where the temples in the North America place get the state things, but Mexico, which is also a federation, just like America, doesn't get to do it. That's curious, isn't it? I think we should do this for every single statelet. Germany is a federation, all right. If a temple, I mean, what is Frankfurt in? We call it the Frankfurt Germany Temple, but Frankfurt is actually in the state. Of um of what uh, uh, Hess right yeah it's in Hess it should be the Frankfurt Hess Temple I'm tired of this centric nonsense so back to the what I was talking about uh, um, yeah let's let's this is just a Jeff thing trust me I'm just I'm just trying to think about what is equitable for all why do we, <laughs> Canadian and American place name and United Statesian place names get this different or- structure. It's got to be one of the other people, okay? And I live here in the nation's capital, so call it the Washington America DC America Temple. That's what we should call it. So, and by the way, the only temple that doesn't follow that structure is the Salt Lake Temple. They made an exception for it. It is not the Salt Lake Utah Temple. It is just the Salt Lake Temple. It's the only one that still does that. So it's they changed like that. Band Aid. They don't need another name. Just the Salt Lake Temple. Everybody knows where it's, that is at. It's too famous, I guess. So there yeah. we go. I mean, which, which I mean, some of that. Makes sense. If they didn't do like Ephraim, what if they just called it the Ephraim Temple? That'd be awesome. Nobody would ever know. Well, Ephraim does sound kind of religious. Maybe that would give it away. I'm sure we could think of ones that don't work. The Taylorsville Temple, just on its own. No Utah. Anyway, uh, as you know, the the, the Washington, D.C. Temple, it's the tallest temple in the church, the highest up Moroni. 
It has huge enough, huge exterior covered with Alabama marble, enough to cover three and one half football fields. The temple's spires are covered in 24 karat liquid gold and fused into embossed porcelainized steel at 1680 degrees Fahrenheit. There's a reflecting pool. They had tickets. The temple drew a record over three quarters of a million visitors, bigger than that of the Los Angeles California temple, yada, yada, yada. I'm not going to read the whole list to you, but there's some fun little factoids here. If you're interested, it'll be over at thisweekinmormons.com and you can you can learn all the all the good things about it. Another thing I want to mention to you here real quick, everybody, the Book of Mormon app. And be clear, the Book of Mormon app, okay? Not the Gospel Library app, the Book of Mormon app, which is a separate app that I imagine... I imagine most members of the church don't bother with that app. I think it's regarded as more of an of a initial access tool, like for investigators and others. You say, yes, download this app of the Book of Mormon. That's kind of the idea. So they've updated the Book of Mormon app to make sharing, watching, and discovering easier. And I think this is kind of cool. So basically, they've added a Discover tab. Uh, they built it with members of the church and other faiths in mind. It basically provides quick links to significant sections of the Book of Mormon. Um, so you don't have to... You can. You don't have to do any guesswork. It'll tell you exactly where to go. You're like, you want to learn, learn about Christ in the Americas? It'll take you right there to Third Nephi 11. Yeah. Uh, there's a watch feature that'll link to the Book of Mormon videos in multiple languages. There's a share tab that g- gets a QR code that goes to the Book of Mormon app in the language of the user's phone. Oh, that's how you can download the app. Yeah, anyway, so, so you I can, think that's you, how you share it with somebody else. Exactly. You can say, here, get, get this app. And it's cool, though, that it links to the language on their phone and will set it up in that language automatically based on your phone settings. So it's just kind of little stuff like this. I admittedly haven't used the Book of Mormon app much. I don't even know if it's on my phone in my little LDS folder or not. Probably not because I just use Gospel Library, but kind of a cool first step. It's cool they're offering this stuff to people, making it more easy to access content and share. Sharing is caring. I had no idea that there was this Book of Mormon app. I was like, oh, I did not know that. Now I, I do. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to go to Utah's environmental nuclear bomb? Yes. Did you know Always. we had an environmental nuclear bomb in Utah? I hear things about that. Yes. So this was fascinating. This was a podcast that came out mm, probably what, maybe a week or 10 days or so ago. It was done by The Daily. If you've ever listened to podcasts by The Daily, I rather enjoy them. Uh, It's about a 30-minute podcast. And what they did is they went out there and they talked about the Great Salt Lake. And I happened to actually listen to this podcast driving to work this morning and then um, driving around a little bit today, um, not knowing we were going to discuss it tonight. So I, I, I felt very up to speed. But basically what they were saying is the Great Salt Lake is shrinking and it is shrinking for a number of different reasons. Um, first of all, obviously, climate change is one of those reasons and um, with hotter temperatures and more evaporation. But really a big reason why it is shrinking is because there's lots of water that is getting diverted to um, take care of all of the residential and commercial development that's going down in Utah, going on down in Utah. So it is not going into the lake. And they are talking about all of the really bad things that can happen if this lake dries up and some of them are already starting. And I just, I I was kind of impressed because I was like, wow, I had no idea that 
the the environmental role that the Great Salt Lake plays. Like, for example, they were talking about in the months of October, November, December, they get lake effect snow at the ski resorts. And that lake mm-hmm. effect snow comes off the Salt Lake. And that's kind of what kickstarts the ski season for people. So you don't have that lake effect snow, you're not going to have that tourism. They also talk about how the um, lake is an environmental um it's a it's a feeding ground for a whole bunch of migration for birds and that um if the things like the brine shrimp go away because as the water is evaporating the um salt content is going higher and when you get the higher salt content then the brine shrimp spend all their energy processing salt and not reproducing and those brine shrimp uh feed lots of animals that go there the other thing that they talked about was as the lake dries up underneath the lake there's all sorts of toxic chemicals and you have the possibility for a dust storm and the dust storm would kick up those toxic chemicals and people would breathe them and they just talked about you know Spencer Cox has requested and said, hey, people, we need to use less water and we need to pray for rain. But just some of the other really hard, difficult political choices that need to be made in order to save the Great Salt Lake. And, you know, I thought it was really interesting because, you know, the church hasn't really you know, they don't get into the environmental issues or anything like that. And and, um, you know, what it kind of reminded me of is um I shouldn't say it reminded me of this, but kind of both sides of the argument. You know, you've got the people saying, hey, we need to take some action to protect the Great Salt Lake. And then you've got others who are like, oh, you know, you guys are just, you're, you're, you're being too woke. This really isn't a problem. You know, the Lord provided this planet for us. We're fine. We don't it's need ours to, to destroy. It's Dag ours Nabbit. to destroy. Exactly. Uh, uh, and it kind of reminded <laughs> Sorry, me of, this, of the song from Saturday's Warrior. Um, zero population is what this, what this reminded me of. <laughs> and I, I, it reminded me of a, uh, there's a Jack Donaghy from 30 rock quote. They did like an earth day kind of episode. And he was like, of course we have to save the earth so that we can d- strip it of the remainder of its resources. <laughs> like that is the point. Anyway, you know, given, <laughs> given the very um, conservative political climate in Utah, and people wanting to develop their property and encouraging the growth, which, you know, everybody want, you know, everybody wants that too. How do you balance what you need to do to protect the Great Salt Lake so you don't create this place that nobody can live in uh, versus, you know, growth and things like that? Because I just don't ever see them putting a moratorium going on. Okay, no more building in Salt Lake. You know, no more houses, no more commercial development. We're maxed out. We have to do this. I, I, I don't see that happening. But yet something has to be done if we're going to prevent the Great Salt Lake from drying up. So just kind of raised all sorts of interesting questions and issues, I thought. They're kind of they're kind of barreling towards catastrophe. I mean, Utah's yeah. been growing at a breakneck pace, some of the fastest growing areas in the country. It's part of me thinks it's because we're like obsessed with growth. We always yeah. are, right? Like, yeah. everything places have to be growing. The economy has to be growing, and we're not we're not able to just say this is fine. We're fine at a moderate yeah. level of stuff. Like, we don't need to be. Ban- it's you know, I mean, it's like the rate at which you are putting up new construction is not the stock market, you don't have share, you know, I mean, obviously construction companies might have shareholders to appease, but, but there's not, 
there's not like growth to be had. The value no. of the state, you know, isn't is going to improve. So it is a curious place to be in. I mean, I grew up, you know, in California. Water is always an issue there for sure. And as is as is the pressure even now more than ever to build more conserve. housing yeah. for, for people. Yeah. Conserve, but also build a lot more housing because people need places to live. Utah's in a different, California is overcrowded and lacks housing. Utah is tight. It's why the market's tight, but there's, I mean, there's construction everywhere in Utah. You drive yeah. along I-15, especially in the Western Salt Lake Valley, ton of it there. There's a ton of stuff going on over there. Um, it's hard. The demand is there. They want to build things, but at some point you got to say, yeah, we don't got the resources for this anymore. And uh, that's not just going to magically fix fix itself. No, it was a very it was an interesting podcast. Yeah, I heard it too. It was a uh, pretty illuminating. They didn't mention it much in the podcast, but I read something recently about how Las Vegas actually does a very good job managing water, despite really? also having a scarcity issue. Yeah, and so you can compare Vegas to Utah, and it's like night and day. Where the Vegas area goes to great lengths to regulate water use, but Utah is very laissez faire about everything and. Like, here we are, you know, yeah. you could regulate stuff, folks. Don't let people have lawns. Use yeah. environmentally appropriate landscaping. Sometimes regulation has to happen. I'm not one for it in all cases, but sometimes you need to regulate. Exactly. Just like Nate Dogg and Warren G said, you got to regulate. All right. How are we doing here? We're 45 odd minutes in. What kind of rando? Well, you know, it's one thing I really want to talk about here is the fact that uh, we have a new general relief society and primary presidency right we do this was discussed of course back in the april general conference which was interesting at the time because i can't remember another time when they said we are releasing so and so but not until august and we all wonder like what's happening until between now and august that like they don't want to change regimes nothing happened but for whatever reason this is how we did it and that's fine so as of uh, just this week, Sister uh, President Jean B. Bingham is no longer the Relief Society General President. She was wonderful and incredible. Also, of course, her counselors, we all love dearly, where we had uh, Sister Sharon Eubank and Reina Alberto, who both were just absolute rock stars. And I've loved the past five years of this presidency immensely. I have just thought they have just been terrific across the board. To say nothing of even the other leaders we've had. I'm um, Joy D. Jones, what she was doing in primary before, she was just outstanding. And then I think it's interesting because the new Relief Society president is Sister Camille Johnson, who was came in a year ago to replace Sister Jones. And then somebody, I don't know, in Salt Lake was like, All right, hold on. We need her not that primary is not important, but like we need her for the big show. Exactly. We need her for the Relief Society. Like she's a far more capable than it even lets on. So we're going to switch her over. And now she is the general relief society president. Maybe like but did not primary her- was just like the JV team. She was on the JV team for a year while she got yeah. her feet wet. And then they moved her up to varsity. Yeah. 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 Um, and I think the only change they made in the primary presidency was that that was a shuffle up. Right. Cause I believe first, um, da, 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 da. Right, because wasn't Susan H. Porter the first counselor previously? And she I became believe the president so. Now? And I think Amy A. Wright was the second counselor. And now Tracy Y. Browning is a new second counselor. Yes. Um, which is which is great. And she's a woman of color as well. And I think that's always terrific to get those voices and those people with those and experiences. And a convert to the church. I mean, not mm-hmm. that we haven't had converts to the church, but she had just a real unusual, atypical 
uh, LDS upbringing. And, um, I, and I, I liked that. In fact, when I was reading the biography on all of these women, because sometimes when we think of the women that are in the General Relief Society presidency, the Young Women's Presidency, and the General Primary Presidency, we tend to think, oh, they're all Utah stay-at-home moms who never worked in the real world or did anything of anything, did anything other than raise children. And the majority of these women are highly educated. They've had careers. They've had all sorts of varied life experiences. Um, one of them, I think it was, can't remember which one of them had, had cancer and survived cancer, which I thought, wow, that's, uh, it was Amy, Amy Wright. That, that, that was Amy Wright who had yes. stage four ovarian cancer. Stage four yeah. ovarian cancer. That is nothing to, um, that, that is, that's big. If you survive stage four ovarian cancer. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you know, she's had some incredible experiences and then you've got, um, sister, I want to make sure I get her name right. Um, Sister Yi, who was Yee, a Disney yes. Amine, uh, a, did Amine, <laughs> I cannot speak tonight. <laughs> she worked in animation. She worked in animation for Disney. And then she, and she oversees went the, to church, the church. And yeah. she oversees the church's animation team. Exactly. So all those cool animations you see in videos, like especially for primary kids or anything yeah. else, she's been involved in that. Yeah, it's a yeah. very interesting background. And then, of course, Camille Johnson. Not only did she, was, did she get a law degree, but she was a practicing lawyer for 30 she years. She was a trial lawyer. A trial right? lawyer at a very big law firm. And so um, I just, I, I think it's, it, I, I, I enjoy the fact, and not that to say that, you know, I mean, I firmly believe all of these women are, are, are called and this is what the Lord wants them to do. But I just appreciate the fact that we're getting a lot of varied backgrounds of these women with varied, varied life experiences that they can then bring to their colleagues. Mm -hmm. Amen to that. I'm excited to see what they do. I mean, I've already enjoyed uh, Sister Johnson and the time that she was in yeah. the primary. I think she'll do some terrific stuff and we're going to get to know these great sisters. And I think it's awesome. Yeah, I'm looking more at the background of when did Sister Browning actually join the church? That's what I was trying to see. I, I think, think she was, was a teenager. It seems like she was a teenager. Yeah, she was like Presbyterian before that. It's very cool stuff. And I love to see that as well. I'm, I will miss Sister. I'll miss, I will miss Sister Eubank probably more than anybody. I think Sharon Eubank is one of my favorite leaders of uh, of quite some time. She has just been terrific. I'm sure yeah. she'll still keep being involved in many excellent capacities, but I will miss her quite a bit. We'll see hey, can her I throw a quick at timeout for women. Oh, <laughs> I have not thought about that for a since I worked at Deseret Book. I remember timeout for women. I remember I went to one that they had like in Pasadena or something like that. And so we staffed it to sell, you know, to sell product for Deseret Book and stuff like that. And I'm there just doing my thing and whatever. And this is funny because I'm sure you know Julie Hanks, right? Oh, yes. The, okay. Before she was Julie Hanks, uh, therapist, <laughs> she was Julie de Azevedo, singer, and pursuing something of a career on the the Mormon, you know, female singing circuit. And she had an album out, so she was there at Time Out for Women. And I remember she kind of she was kind of was one of the few people like want was there and wandered into the merch area we were hanging out, and she just kind of walked in. I hate telling the story because I think Julie Hanks is awesome, but she she had a great sense of self, we shall say, and was just like, okay. I'm Julie de Azevedo. 
And we were kind of like, and my buddy just goes like, hey, what's up? I'm Andrew. Nice to meet you. And just like didn't care at all. <laughs> just knocked her down a peg or two. But I'll always remember that because it was very much like we were supposed to go like, Yay. it's her. It's her. Um, whatever. People evolve. Obviously, she's gone on to do incredible things in the therapy space with a whole different career. And I, I, I think nothing ill of her by any means. I mean, heck, I walk into places all the time and say, I'm Jeff Openshaw. And they and nobody go, cares. okay. And nobody cares. It's very sad. Real quick fun mention here. Last week, Elder Dale G. Renland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles was able to throw the opening pitch at a, Mar- at a Maryland, at a Baltimore Orioles game over there in Camden yes. Yard. As you know, every summer we have some kind of Latter-day Saint night, formerly Mormon night at uh, baseball games. It's a big thing. And uh, sometimes the person who throws the opening pitch can be of uh, varying renown. But they had Elder Renlund do it this time. And this was not a random assignment, though. It was cool. Elder Renlund did his residency and a fellowship at Johns Hopkins. He was a physician professionally. So this was like a big deal. He spent a significant portion of his professional life living in Baltimore uh, and being a fan there. And he spoke about how like impactful it was for him. So I think it's very cool. They got to bring him over there and throw out that pitch. Good job, Elder Renlund. They had a shirt for him with his name on it. Yeah. Also, I like that they let them wear jerseys and stuff. I like in this one because he's just, he's sporting just like an orange under, yeah. like t-shirt underneath, and then the jersey. Because so often they do this with apostles, and they're still wearing their shirt and tie, and they just put the jersey on over it. So, as if I didn't love Elder Renland enough, thank you for just dressing appropriately for exactly. the occasion. I, I I appreciate him doing that, and people being cool with him doing that. Thank exactly. You yes. All right, where you want to go next? Oh, wherever you want. We don't have to cover everything on the list, you know. Whatever okay. you're feeling. However you're feeling today. Let's let's hit the Christian national is incompatible with Mormonism. Oh, sure. That's a topic for the dinner table. It is a topic for the dinner table. So, um, <clears throat> as many people may or may not be aware, there are certain members of the Republican Party who are saying, <laughs> um, we should be Christian nationalists. Republicans should be Christian nationalists. And espousing, well, they don't go and say, yeah, th- yeah sorry. Espousing, yeah. They're not saying we should be. Continue. Yes. I'm, I'm, and I'm anyway, espousing I that I all laws and things like that should should fall in line with uh, with Christian principles. And yes. um, and so it's you know when I when I first heard this, kind of my first thought was, and it was kind of interesting because this article in By Commons Consent uh, touches on this that a lot of those Christian evangelical groups that claim this Christian nationalism, think that Mormonism is a cult. And so, you know, when I hear members who are like, oh, yes, Christian nationalism, that's great. I'm like, do you realize they don't consider you to be Christian? And so you're not part of their little gang, that Mormonism is a cult to them. And uh, anyway, and so the article kind of goes through and talks about things that Joseph Smith had said uh, in the early part of the church about, um, he said, I'm bold to declare before heaven that I'm just as ready to die defending the rights of a Presbyterian, a Baptist, or a good man of any other denomination. And just how often the church has said, hey, religious freedom means religious freedom for all religions, not just Christian religions, but, you know, Muslims, Buddhists, 
any sort of religion. We believe in religious freedom for anybody to be able to worship how and where and, and, and the way that they want to worship. And so, um, you know, this Christian nationalism is, is really, I think, incompatible with our beliefs. And, and that's what, that's what struck me when I first read it. But, um, you know, I, I, I did not really go down the rabbit hole of the comments and probably the comments on by common consent wouldn't, wouldn't be that bad. But if this were to hit, you know, Deseret News or Salt Lake Tribune, you know, for sure, you'd have a lot of members of the church who are like, yes, Christian nationalism, that's a good thing. We should be doing that. Yeah. Just based on what I've seen. And I don't even know if they're thinking of it in those terms, but yeah. there's abs- there's absolutely a belief that, yes, it is our duty to impose Christian ideology on the states. And, and, to, be, and to be clear, there's a very clear distinction right here. So, I mean, it's not... Um, and Sam Brunson makes a point. He says he's not. There's a difference between my values influence my policy preferences. Yes, and the laws of the country should codify my version of Christianity. And we're talking about the latter, and that's a real thing. Yeah, like that's what's going down, and that's that is antithetical to religious freedom, big time. That's yep. just not what it's about. That's a good piece. Um, one fun thing here, the church has let us know now that uh, you can find the church on Spotify and other music streaming services. Search for the Church of Jesus Christ for, I never thought I'd read this line, for uplifting Christian pop and instrumental music. I didn't think we'd even embraced the Christian pop label for anything because it's not reverent enough, but here we are. And I'm fully aware of the type of music that they put out nowadays. I- I'm fully aware of the EFY music they put out 20 years ago that... Um, I remember even when I was on my mission and someone asked if EFY music was okay. And our mission president actually had an opinion. He was like, well, if you understand the lyrics, that's fine. But if it's in English and you're like living with, uh, you know, a native Spanish speaker, they don't even know what they're saying. He's like, then it's just nothing but like pop music for them. So think of, so think about whether that's appropriate. <laughs> like if you understand the lyrics, sure. If you don't, well, then what? If that's the case, then I don't know what I've been doing with Sigur Rose for all these years, people, because I don't know a word they're saying, and I haven't for 20 years, but it still uplifts me. So there's, uh, you can find new new artists, quote unquote, on, the, on Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, Pandora. No word if you can listen Lostless on Tidal, unfortunately, but mm. hey, maybe we'll get there someday. But you can look for the artist Church of Jesus Christ. You can look for the artist Strive to Be, which has youth music. And of course, you can find the Tabernacle Choir at Temple Square as an artist, quote unquote, to get all of this music in one place. Um, it's a curious way to do it. It's fine. I don't, you could also just have the church curating like playlists instead, but whatever. It's great. It's fine. The one thing I wouldn't mind seeing, though, even on something like Spotify, I would love it if the scriptures or general conference were brought to these streaming oh. services. Because... It's nice to listen to them, and I'm going out on a limb here, and maybe I'm really dumb, okay? And I know long-time listeners have no problem going along with that. But if you want to listen to conference talks on your drive, your commute, whatever else, right? You're opening up the Gospel Library app. You're finding the talk. You click the little headphone button. You know, you're, you're connected to your Bluetooth, and then you stream it, and it's fine. But once that talk's over, it might move on to the next one. But either way, you're dealing with what is a perfectly good interface in the gospel library app, but not one that is like multimedia first, you know, not, not audio streaming first. And so I find for things like that, especially something like conference where you might want to work your way through it. 
or even like the like the uh, Saints series, the books. Yeah, I listened to an entire Saints book, but I did it via the Gospel Library app, and it was actually kind of tedious because I had to like remember where I was, go back and find a chapter, and stream it again. I mean, I could save where I was in the app on chapter. I would really love to have those sorts of things as artists on music streaming apps. That would be yeah. incredibly impactful. I would be probably more likely to work my way through conference talks or through Saints or something else if they were on there in that level of organization. How easy would that be if there was a Spotify account called General Latter-day Saint General Conference, whatever, and one album was Sunday morning April, session. Was April, or one album was April 2022, and then within that, you know, you know, the equivalent of disc one would be Sunday morning, disc two could be Sunday afternoon, that kind of, whatever, however you want to do it. That'd be, that'd be really, really cool. I don't know. I'm sure they've considered it. That's my ask. The music side of it's great, but I would love a more effective and efficient way to stream audio content that is found in the library app. That is my request. I completely, my I completely agree with you. Well, thank you. Well, should I conclude us out with my favorite segment, which is Mormons behaving badly? Absolutely and forever, yes. Okay. I am going to give an update on my favorite little Idaho sheriff, Craig Rowland. <laughs> <clears throat> you may recall he is the Bingham County Sheriff. And this is the gentleman where the young women put a thankful turkey on his door last November, and he was a little less than thankful for his turkey. So um, he ended up with some felony charges for failing to be thankful for his turkey. Uh And he also justified his behavior by making some rather um, salacious comments about the Native Americans that live in his county. So um, needless to say, he was he was actually set for trial last week. His felony charges were supposed to go to trial last week. He ended up um, firing his lawyer, which I thought was probably a good call. Apparently, he and his lawyer were having a failure to communicate. So he fired that lawyer and he got a new lawyer and his new lawyer um of course, said, you know, I'm going to need some time to get up to speed. So his trial was pushed back to October. But the key thing that happened, and I don't know if this was at the bequest of his new lawyer or what was going on, he finally submitted his resignation. There was a big call for him to resign after this incident. He refused to resign. uh, And just last week, he submitted his resignation and said, I've become too much of a distraction for Bingham County. And I want to go, you think? And (sighs) effective August 1st, he resigned. So he is no longer the sheriff of Bingham County. So over. It's over as far as the sheriff goes. I, of course, will be following his trial in October, and I will keep you all updated as to whether or not, A, he he comes to his senses and enters into a plea agreement, or B, he goes to trial and we'll see if he gets convicted of the charges if he if he goes to trial. I You should, I, be, his, you should be his lawyer. I also have He'll another theory. Here's okay. my other theory about uh, why there is a delay in his trial. Um, the attorney general's office in the state of Idaho was the one that was prosecuting him because of obviously conflicts of interest with the local county prosecuting him. And he has always maintained that the current elected attorney general has a vendetta against him um, based on some outrageous statements that he made to the legislature that rape kits shouldn't be tested because the majority of women make these things up. And Um. so... 
that particular attorney general lost in the primary. So we will have a new attorney general come January, whether that is a Republican or Democrat. Given Idaho's political climate, it's probably more oh. than likely to be a Republican. It's going to be Ammon Bundy. It's going to be Ammon Bundy. No, Ammon Bundy's the governor. He's running for governor. <laughs> but he's going to pivot. He's going to well. He's going to have a bit of a problem because he's not a licensed lawyer, and it's kind of the law in Idaho. If you want to be an attorney general, you have to be a licensed lawyer. Yeah, uh, uh, they don't care about laws. But you know, Ammon Bundy doesn't care about laws, so you're probably right about that. There's no way to own the libs and not to care about the rules to get elected in the first place. Come on. There you go. So I kind of wonder if he's trying to push his trial back until post-election to see if the new attorney general will cut him a better deal or dismiss his charges. So I don't know. We'll see what happens in October if he goes to trial or if it gets continued again. Well, okay. So. Um, I'll add one last one here that I don't know if it's – and we don't know if they are Mormons behaving badly, but in St. George, there was a, a crime spree across 14 LDS meeting houses. Uh, uh, three people, including a juvenile, have been arrested over allegedly breaking windows and vandalizing all for a spree across the St. George, Utah area over multiple days. And they have, you know, arrested them. A couple of them are cooperating and have essentially copped uh, to what they have done. One of whom is an adult. Sure. Um and they, they, you know, there's going to be some, some a secondary felony charge of criminal mischief. It's one of my favorite charges, by the way, getting cr- charged with mischief. But uh, I know it's a very real thing. I'm not trying to make light of it, folks. But uh, that's going down. Just 14 is pretty staggering. Like, that takes time to spend your days yeah. like, all right, let's go trash this building. Let's go get this building. Let's go get this building. Let's just work our way across Washington County until we hit Laverkin and then call it a day. Well, and, and especially considering that. it's July. It's hot there. Why do you even want to leave your house, let alone plan to destroy buildings? Why do you want to live in St. George? These are questions I don't have answers to. Exactly. No but the best part is, is the adult that is arrested, he's in the Purgatory Correctional Facility. <laughs> there are a number of reasons why you could call the, oh the that correctional facility Purgatory, because A, it's a correctional facility, and B, where it's located. Um, Tiffany, before we go, it's not your your the official week. Any any uh, favorite things? Anything you're plugging right now, or are you going to save it for your next show? You know, I'm trying to think if I have a favorite thing right now. Mocha carpet or whatever it's called. Uh, Yeah, my milk chocolate carpet, colored carpet. Um, Yeah, I just, um, you know what? I will will plug a podcast that I listened to that I was going to plug a couple weeks ago on when we recorded, but I didn't. Um, It is in... The LDS Living All In podcast. They did an interview with Alyssa Parker. And for those of you who may not remember who Alyssa Parker is, uh, her daughter Emily was killed in the Sandy Hook school shooting. And they did this interview with Alyssa right after the Uvalde school shooting. And she, of course, had some thoughts on Uvalde, but mostly she was talking about her experience with Emily um, 
and what that day was like and just the spiritual gifts that she was given. And it was such an outstanding podcast. I mean, I'm sitting there crying as I'm listening to it because you can just feel her emotion and imagine what, you know, she was going through as a parent. Um, but at the same time, it was a very uplifting podcast as well because she really talks about the blessings and the comfort and the things that the Lord gave her. So yeah. I would encourage anybody to go listen to that because it was it was well worth it. That's awesome. Cool. Thanks for the plug. All In has come out of nowhere and become a very powerful force in the LDS podcast realm. We, on the other hand, don't have those resources. So please, folks, if you want to support us on Patreon, please do so. You know, we, we appreciate you chipping in. It's very nice of you to do so. And uh, obviously, visit us at thisweekinmormons.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, we'll be back next week with more news. Tiffany will be back in a Tiffany. Tiffany, Tiffany will be back in a couple of weeks with Ariane uh, for a Sisters-focused episode. Of course. So, in, so until then, Tiffany, thanks for being here. Great to see you. You're welcome. Enjoy it. Appreciate it. it. And, and uh, thanks all you for listening and we hope you have a great week this week in Mormons is over goodbye